0: Thank you for tuning into this webinar, A to Z for 2020 and Beyond, Top Trends Impacting Workplaces. This webinar is hosted by AGH University and presented by AGH Employer Solutions. AGH Employer Solutions is a team of professionals that helps employers, business owners, and human resource professionals hire, compensate, manage, engage, train, and retain one of their most critical resources, their talent. Today's speaker is Carrie Cox. Carrie is a senior consultant for AGH employer solutions, organizational development and family business services group. She has experience in a variety of human resource functions, including a thorough knowledge of labor laws, compensation structures, employee classification, benefits administration, performance management, and human resource best practices. She has served clients in numerous industries, including manufacturing, construction, banking, and not for profits. Today's webinar will look at our workplaces and how they're changing faster than ever. This webinar will outline trends for 2020 and beyond that you need to know to remain competitive in the talent landscape to ensure you can attain your organizational goals.
1: And good afternoon, everybody. Thanks for joining us today. Happy new year. I hope your 2020 is off to a great start. In the work that I do, I have the privilege, really, of working with employers across industries and sizes on various HR and organizational projects and challenges. So I get to see a lot of different things in the work that I do, and it may be helping with recruiting for key positions, developing compensation structures, assessing strategies to ensure compliance with employment laws, advising on employee performance challenges, training and leadership development, and more. Really, a lot of what you all do on a day-to-day basis. Regardless of the type of company I'm working with in terms of size or how long they've been in business or what industry they're in, they tend to face some of the same challenges. So regardless of your company size or the industry you support, this webinar should help you understand some of the broad trends impacting your business and identify areas of focus to keep you competitive in the ever-changing people management discipline. So today we're going to take a quick look back at what we thought we were going to see in the last decade, identify broad trends that will impact us in 2020 and beyond, narrow our focus to some key areas to consider for action, and identify some of the skills and competencies that we'll need to focus on for success over the next decade. So first, let's just take a quick look back at where we were a decade ago. If you think back to 2010, what we were most dealing with was economic uncertainty as we moved into the new decade. We were fully in the middle of the great recession and we really didn't know how long we would be there. As you can see by this graph, we were not in a good place in 2009 and we really didn't know how quickly it would turn around. As we started 2010, some businesses were just starting to see the full effects of the recession and the impacts, and many businesses took years to climb out of it. I remember working with many companies at that time that were uncertain really about everything. And instead of adding back employees as their business picked up, many of them chose to adjust to what we called the new normal of being shorter staffed and pushing employees to do more with less. all heard those terms many times. Our economic position in the US and globally significantly impacted many of the trends we saw in 2010. So let's take a quick review of what we were facing at that time. As I did a bit of research as to the trends impacting workplaces in 2010, these were some of the top ones I found. Because of the recession, it was an employer's job market. There was much unemployment, so it was easy to find people. Social media was on the rise, and many employers were quick to jump on policies to restrict it in the workplace, thinking that it just wasn't appropriate for um, the workplace. There were concerns about rehiring layoff workers and creating processes for reentry of retirees to the workforce. Some people took early retirement um, and took advantage of some opportunities in the recession. So how did we get those people back in place? Flex scheduling and telecommuting were just beginning to be a thing, and we had a lot to learn about how to effectively manage employees who took advantage of those benefits. Because we were recovering from a session in the early 2010s, there were more limited benefits and perks, including reduced business travel. People were lucky to have jobs since unemployment was so high, so they didn't care as much about the benefits that came with them. We were also starting to see more freelance work. So if someone couldn't land full-time employment, they would be more likely to take part-time or contract work. That allowed more freedom for them to work multiple jobs. Green jobs were catching people's attention as well, working with more efficiency and environmentally friendly companies and being bilingual at work was something sure to help you in your career. So out of those trends, what's still valid today or or what did we really see come to fruition? Well, we've obviously moved from an employer's job market to an employee's job market, and that has caused employers to rethink their total compensation packages. We've had to get creative with benefits offerings and how we reward employees, and that includes increased flexible working arrangements and telecommuting. Social media isn't forbidden anymore in a lot of places, and it's used as a way to promote the company, but also as a way to engage employees. Many are using Facebook, Instagram, and even Snapchat as a tool for marketing to and communicating with applicants and employees. With Snapchat even around 10 years ago? Even an idea in someone's brain? I don't know. We've coined the term gig economy to describe the short-term contract and freelance work that may have been a necessity for some in 2010 just to get work, but now it's become a way of working for many. It's really a preferred way for some. Green jobs have also increased as people have become more concerned about the environment and the future of our planet. So working for companies that have sustainable practices is really important to some. And speaking more than just English certainly gives us an edge and may be required for certain jobs. There were also a couple of things that we missed in our 2010 predictions or those trends that we didn't necessarily see um, or forecast. So at the beginning of the decade, feedback was much more structured and employers tended to focus more on a ranking or rating system. And now organizations are changing that thinking, and leaning towards how their employees are growing professionally and what they are doing for the company. It's less about ratings and more about growth for the employee and value creation for the company. We're also seeing feedback shifting to more informal and more frequent communications. And the other thing that we may have missed as we hit the 2010s was uh, data analysis really had less of an impact at that point in time than it does now. At the beginning of the decade, many HR professionals had little experience with data analysis, but more recently, it's become much more important as a skill set that all HR professionals need to have. People are starting to see the importance of having data analytic skills, and it is expected to grow through the upcoming years. So let's look or move back to the future and look into our crystal ball to see what are the key trends that may shape our workplaces in the roaring 20s. I always felt like that that would have been a good decade for me to live in if I had had the opportunity. The first thing we want to consider for the next decade is what trends are driving us in terms of some broad categories, political, economic, social, and technology. So let's look at the primary drivers in each area in a bit more detail. First, political. It's an election year. No surprise there, right? So regardless of your political leanings, election years can impact your business. We've noticed over time with our clients that employers become much more conservative and are less likely to make major changes in election years, preferring a wait-and-see approach. The results of this year's election at the national level could impact many areas of business and employment-related laws, whether that's through actual legislation or through changes in enforcement or even interpretation. The current administration has undone much of what we saw change in the 2010s, and if there is a change in the party in charge in the White House or Congress in 2020, we would expect the pendulum to swing back the other direction again. And that will take some time to change some of those things, but more immediately, there could be some areas of law or enforcement that do change this year because lawmakers and agencies may push things forward if they anticipate a shift in in the party alignment. So expect some uncertainty in the coming year, and depending upon the results of the November elections, be prepared for changes to laws, interpretation, or enforcement. In terms of the economy, it's a big unknown right now. So we've seen unprecedented economic growth in the last several years if you look at the stock market trends and what goes up must come down, right? It's not a matter of if is what most experts say, it's it's a matter of when and by how much. So some analysts think we'll see a correction in 2020, others say 2021 or 2022. And most don't think it'll be nearly as severe as what we saw in 2007 and 2008. So what can you do to prepare for that? Well, consider how you can help to ready your business. What systems do you have in place to minimize minimize the effect on your people? Could you perhaps not replace certain positions when natural turnover occurs so that you're not overstaffed? If you do have to do layoffs at some point, are you uh, prepared in advance with criteria for who will be laid off? Is that clearly defined? There are certain things you can do in advance of a market correction to make sure you're ready when it happens and you're helping the business be ready as well. And if you want more information on that topic, you can access a previously recorded webinar through AGH University. Um, I'd recommend that highly for you if you're interested in that. As we look at social trends, there are all kinds of things that we could consider. And the most critical I would identify is Generation Z is entering our workforce, and they're here today. They were born in 1995 or later give or take, just depending upon the source you look at. So they're about 25 years of age and younger, and it's really time for us to figure out who they are and how they will impact our workplaces. And we'll talk about this in a little more detail in the webinar, but here's a hint for you. They're different from millennials. So if you think you yeah, got it, I'll figure it out. And how we need to adjust to the younger generation, they are different. So I'll give you some tips on that today as well. In technology, it just continues to accelerate changes in our workplaces. If you're not embracing technology and proactive ways to solve your business challenges, really, you're behind and it's time to catch up. The most progressive companies are using data analysts and programming in all aspects of their business from marketing to human resources in order to solve business problems. Employers are using dashboards with data updated in real time to be able to quickly assess complex problems and provide course corrections to positively impact the business. In addition, artificial intelligence and machine learning can help us in various ways. Figuring out how to use AI to streamline processes or provide information is something more and more businesses are doing. And we'll talk about this trend in a little more detail in the webinar. So before we move on, I did want to get your input on our first poll question. So um, based on the trends that we just looked at, which do you think will be, or will most significantly impact your organization in the coming decade? So political environment and potential changes to legislation, economy, market correction, social aspects, Gen Z taking a hold of our workplaces, or technology, AI and data analytics becoming essential parts of our business decision-making. Give you just a little bit more time on that to respond. About 92% in, so we'll close the poll and show the results About 22% of you said political environment would have a pretty significant impact. 26% said the economy, 13% said social changes, and 39% said technology. So, wide distribution there, and um, interesting for us to consider how all of those shifts. um, You know, with social, I think that's kind of interesting. Not as many people feel that's as significant, maybe, because... We're adapting our workplaces every day to the people that uh, we work with, so that might not take hold. But some of the other ones, less um, predictable. We have less control over with politics and the economy, so certainly something to keep an eye on and figure out how we can minimize any potential impacts. All right, thanks for your participation in that one. So let's go ahead and move on to think about some of the key aspects that we can take action on. So we're going to focus from A to Z in this section of the webinar. So let's start with A for analytics. Most organizations are using some form of data analytics in their regular decision-making processes whether they know it or not but many people are uncomfortable with it. So let's break it down for you just a little bit. The first thing we need to understand is what do we mean by analytics? It's more than just data and it's distinguished from reporting. Reporting tells us what happened over a period of time and answers the questions what or how much. Analytics uses that data to obtain actionable insights to improve the way we do business. It helps us understand why as we look at relationships and patterns in order to predict the probability of future events. So reporting is the what, analytics, the how. So what are some of the uses for analytics when we think about our workforces? Well, we can use data to predict and assess employee retention, to build better recruitment strategies, to build better compensation structures, or to evaluate and make changes to our wellness programs as a few examples for you. So applying data analytics is really a process. And like all processes, there are different levels of maturity an organization goes through. With descriptive analytics, we start with the data in the past or present in a pretty basic way. What is the data? What what are we looking at here? So an example is turnover rates. For example, my turnover rate this year is 14%. Last year, our turnover rate was 8%. It's a answer to the question, what? Just the facts. We don't know anything about why at this point. When we move to diagnostic analytics, we start to understand why we're looking at different data and metrics to figure out why something happened. So using turnover as our example, we might know that we reorganized our organizational structure and hired three new managers in that turnover um, time period we were looking at. And that's why we had a shift in turnover. Now predictive analytics helps us to begin to predict future happenings. So we're looking at cause and effect to choose the right solution. If we know that work structure changes and hiring new managers increases turnover, what can we do to counteract that trend to have better success with this type of transition when we see it again in the future? For example, if we put our new managers through a structured 12-month orientation process to ensure they know how to do things around here like we would expect with our employees, does that reduce turnover? Or if we think about the org structure changes, if we know that that causes turnover to increase, could we communicate more frequently or in different ways to encourage people to stay so that they don't feel uncertain and leave the organization? Could we be more regimented in our communication and more transparent in what we tell our employees? This phase is a bit exploratory in that you're testing hypotheses, but you're exploring in a measured way based on the data that you have. Now, prescriptive analytics is the roadmap to get there. So what is the best course of action to get to our desired results? It's the add-on to predictive analytics. It's the confirmation of our plan that we derived from the hypotheses we tested through the predictive stage. So in our case, we may have experimented with communication when we have org structure changes, and we found out that in order to not see a spike in turnover, we have to have town hall meetings every two weeks with the CEO, and we have to have manager check-ins every three days with employees, and we have to communicate X, Y, and Z in the CEO town hall meetings, and we have to communicate A, B, and C in the manager check-ins. So we know that those things impact turnover and would reduce it if we're doing those things. We know the answer to influence the outcomes, and we use data to drive that. So it all starts with solving a business problem and using the data you have to get the answer. So when you think about how you might use data analytics, don't be discouraged if you aren't a statistician. Most of us aren't first start with the basics. What is the business problem that you're trying to solve? What is the challenge that you have or that your managers have? Then you have to look at what data do I have? What hypotheses might I make? And finally, how do I test it to know for sure? And this is the analysis as we work through a business problem to achieve a solution that you have to undertake. Pretty simple when you break it down, but you just have to have all the right pieces and the data present for you to look at it that way. So let's go ahead and move to our next polling question. And in this case, we want to look at um, what stage of data analytics are you in your organization? Are you in that descriptive stage where you've got some basic data? Are you in the diagnostic phase where you are a little more proactive at trying to figure out why? Have you moved to predictive where you're more strategic about how we go about things or even prescriptive where you have a really clear roadmap based on the data? We'll give you just a little bit of time to answer that question. Just a few more seconds. We like to get to 90% responses. Okay, go ahead and share those results. So most of you are in the descriptive or diagnostic phase of data analytics within your organizations, which is very typical. Very few, um, if any, are operating at the fourth level prescriptive, and that's true here too. We had 2% there. Um, and actually in some of the models I've seen in thinking about data analytics, they don't even include that um, phase because so few people are operating in it, but certainly as you're using the data in your organizations, you'll want to progress through those stages and make sure you are serving the organization as a true advisor by figuring out why things are happening and then what we need to do to positively impact the business with um, the hypothesis that we test and then implement based on the data that we have okay we'll go ahead and move on then so our next a that we're going to consider is um ai and automation so Thinking about this, um, it's a little out there really for some people to process that we have machine learning that can help us through um, various aspects of our business, but there are some really concrete and applicable things that you can do here. So what self-service technology, for instance, do you use to make processes more efficient and access to information more reliable for your employees? Are employees able to access and make changes to their personal data without involving you? Or do they have to still fill out a paper form to get a change in their basic data? Can employees get their benefits or policy questions answered without talking to a person in HR? More companies are using HR chatbots to help with communication about basic benefits and policy information where an employee can just ask a simple question and get a response in an automated way. Additionally, employees are using different communication tools beyond Outlook and standard email such as Slack or WhatsApp. So how can you embrace these technologies in an effort to provide more efficient and better service to employees? Something for you to consider. These aspects are also critical for your non-employees or your applicants. So how are you streamlining processes to get applications reviewed quickly? Can you use artificial intelligence to screen your resumes or to help you conduct interviews? Can you use, applicant uh, video interviews to screen. I know I've seen some studies on AI being much more effective than we are as humans in um, screening for inconsistencies when people do video interviews, and they can tell when uh, candidates are lying. AI can tell um, because AI is able to pick up on some of the subtle nuances and changes in micro expressions that we as humans can't necessarily pick up So really video um, applications are an interesting way to think about moving forward if you have the ability to use that technology. And another thing to consider which sounds really basic is just making sure your application process can be done online via mobile devices. So over 80% of Americans own smartphones and the percentage of people that have an actual laptop or desktop computer on a personal basis is less than that. So people are using their smartphones and their personal devices to apply for jobs, and the trend is instant application. As an applicant, my data may be loaded to a recruiting platform, and I can apply in one touch. So do your systems keep up, or do I have to go on and fill out a lengthy and cumbersome application on your website, and then I get frustrated because it's taking me so long and I just give up? And then you miss out on good applicants if that's the case. Attention spans are so short these days, and we know that, so you want to make sure that your technology systems are keeping up. So let's move on to B, and no, we're not going to hit every letter of the alphabet today. We'd be here all day if we were going to do that. Um, But as an HR professional, you can add significant value by being a business advisor and knowing about your business. That means it's essential for you to understand the business you work in and how it all connects. So this includes not only your workforce, but all aspects of the business, your products, your services, if engineering and R&D are involved, your marketing, communications, sales, operations, finances, all of it. When you understand the business processes in your organization, managers will be more likely to listen to what you have to say, and your influence just increases so much. It also makes you a better recruiter, a better employee advocate, and a better management sounding board. So shadow people, ask questions, have coffee or lunch with people to learn not only their challenges, but what's going well and what we need to do more of. Make sure you understand what are the mission, vision, and short and long-term company goals. How does the company make money or generate funding if you're not in a for-profit business? Which divisions in your organization are most profitable? What does the CEO think are the biggest challenges facing the business? What are the biggest challenges facing each manager in the business? Those are all questions you should be able to answer. It's essential for you to be proactive in your learning to be considered a valuable advisor. So how can you recommend the best ways to support people in your organization if you don't know everything you can about the company? And it doesn't stop with just learning your company's business. You have to know your industry as well. So what are the trends impacting the business and the industry? Consider that pest analysis we walked through earlier, political, economic, social, technology trends that impact your business. Network with industry peers and attend not just HR and management related conferences, but industry conferences. You really can learn a lot from those. Building your business and industry knowledge will help you become an integral part of that management team if you already are not a part of that. All right, so there's B. So let's shift to C for compliance. And while that's a really large topic, I wanted to point out just a few highlights um, for you to be aware of. And we'll start with marijuana usage, talk about a couple of pay-related changes, and then I want to mention a couple of compliance topics for you to keep your eyes on. So depending upon where you live, you are either in a state or you border a state that um, marijuana has either become legal or some form of it has become legal or decriminalized to some degree. So states have been relaxing their laws related to marijuana, we know this, and you can see on the map that the really dark green states have legalized usage fully, and others have decriminalized to some extent or allowed medical usage only. As of December 2019, there were only 11 states where it was fully illegal. So those are the very light green on your screen. Alabama, Idaho, Kansas, Mississippi, Nebraska, North Carolina, South Carolina, South Dakota, Tennessee, Wisconsin, Wyoming. And in three of those states, they've decriminalized it to at least some degree. So this is an area to watch really closely as legislation has likely either been introduced in your state or maybe pending if it's not fully legal in your state at this time. So what does that mean for you as an employer? Well, the first thing to consider is it's still federally illegal, and it probably will be for the foreseeable future. So in most cases, you are completely covered if you want to prohibit any drug use and terminate or not hire for positive drug screens. Employers are never required to tolerate on-the-job impairment. And then the DOT has certain requirements you need to be aware of if that applies to you, and OSHA may consider drug testing to be a necessary part of ensuring a safe workplace, so you could, you should consider that as well. So, if you want to keep strict drug restriction policies in place, you can. But something to consider is you may have good employees that test positive for a drug screen or good applicants that test positive for a drug screen due to legal use of marijuana in your state or a neighboring state, depending upon where you are. So for your non-safety sensitive positions or those that aren't subject to DOT requirements, you may want to consider if you really need to continue to drug test for marijuana. Do we have prohibitions based on sound business reasons, or are we making moral judgments and maybe we need to reconsider how we perceive marijuana usage by our employees? And why would we even consider that? Well, testing positive for marijuana doesn't mean that an employee is currently under the influence of drugs. Unlike alcohol testing that shows current impairment, testing for marijuana only helps us to determine recent usage. And depending upon the type of test you use, um, the length of time in the system will vary. So saliva and blood testing are more accurate in determining more recent usage, but urine testing can indicate usage as far back as 30 days and hair as far back as 90 days. So again, what if your employee was vacationing in a state where it's legal 30 days ago and then you test them, they might have a positive drug screen and did not even use anywhere near um, your facility or they're not impaired at all. It's just still in their system. The other thing to think about is what happens when marijuana is used for medical purposes um, to treat conditions or help with conditions that apply or that qualify for FMLA or ADA. So some courts have indicated protection for employees or applicants that are using marijuana for medical purposes where it's legal under state law as it may qualify as a disability accommodation under ADA. Now, currently those cases have been primarily in the Northeast, so they're not impacting those of us in the Midwest, but certainly consider that as you're thinking about your uh, policies related to marijuana. So my recommendation is look at your policies, make sure you don't need to make any changes there. If you are going to continue to prohibit drug usage, um, make sure your policy states that you prohibit On the job usage and reporting to work under the influence, including the use of prescription drugs to a degree that renders them incapable of safely performing their job duties. It is really essential to be proactive in your review of this topic. So it's definitely something that we're seeing changes to, and I have a lot of clients talking about this on a regular basis. So we've had some pay related changes in the law this month. So our next um, compliance focus is uh, FLSA changes. So as of January 1, the Fair Labor Standards Act changed the salary threshold for considering an employee exempt from overtime under the white collar exemptions. So it is now $684 per week and employers may use non-discretionary bonuses and incentive payments including commissions, paid at least annually to satisfy up to 10% of that standard salary level. So you probably didn't have to make significant changes um, as you most... Employers had already done this several years back when we saw the changes um, originally being implemented, and then, of course, they were stayed by the courts. But keep in mind that the exemption duties test still applies. So in addition to paying employees on a salary basis at the minimum threshold, employers or excuse me, employees must be doing particular things related to the business that qualify um, in certain duties. So you can't just agree to pay salary with no overtime consideration, even if both parties agree to it, if the employee's job duties do not qualify as exempt. And the DOL publishes very good guidance on that. It's a gray area in some cases. Um, but it is an area I see again and again with employers when I conduct HR audits and even in cases where the company is sophisticated and HR really knows what they're doing, I tend to see uh, positions that are misclassified. And sometimes it's management pressure to um, have people as salaried, but it can sometimes help you to have an outside party review that uh, for compliance with exemptions. The other piece that's changed a little bit related to um, FLSA requirements, in December, the DOL announced a final rule that will allow employers to more easily offer perks and benefits to employees. So it's the most significant update to the FLSA in over 50 years. The new rule maybe doesn't change what you're doing, but it clarifies what perks and benefits may be excluded when you calculate the regular rate of pay, which of course impacts overtime compensation. So many of you may have already excluded these items, but I would encourage you to review that final rule to understand if you need to make any changes to your policies or your pay practices. So let me go over just a few. Um, The DOL clarified regulations to confirm that employers may exclude the following from an employee's regular rate of pay. So that includes uh, cost of providing certain parking benefits, wellness programs, gym access and fitness classes employee discounts on retail goods certain tuition benefits and adoption assistance payments for unused paid leave including paid sick leave or paid time off reimbursed expenses including cell phone plans uh, credentialing exam fees organization membership dues and travel Um, clarified that reimbursements that do not exceed the maximum travel reimbursement under the federal travel regulation system or the optional IRS substantiation amounts for travel expenses are reasonable payments. Uh, Certain sign bonuses and certain longevity bonuses are excluded from that regular rate of pay calculation. The cost of office coffee and snacks (laughs) to employees as gifts And discretionary bonuses are all excludable there. So, again, I encourage you to review the final rule in detail and make sure you're excluding only uh, only the items clarified by the DOL. And, again, this impacts regular rate of pay for overtime purposes calculations. So, you could be including too many pay tides or too few, which would have impacts on either your employees or the business. So another area related to pay changes I want to just mention, and this is not new, but be mindful of that pay gap that's out there. So according to the United States BLS Bureau of Labor Statistics, women make 82 cents for every dollar men make. And it's critical for you to review your pay and promotional practices so that disparate impact discrimination doesn't occur. This can happen when your policies look fair on the outside, but certain groups of employees end up being treated differently. So, for example, men tend to negotiate salary adjustments more often and for higher amounts than women, and over time, that can contribute to the pay gap if you don't routinely analyze the differences in pay for your company. In addition, doing a little bit of research on this, um, workers at the top are seeing more wage growth while others have not. So according to a Hamilton project um, research uh, report that I had read, wage earners in the bottom quintile experience negative real wage growth from 1979 to 2016 while workers in the top quintile experience over 27% in real wage growth. So how does this become a compliance issue? Well, let's look at a hypothetical example. What happens when the workers in the top quintile are predominantly white men and the workers in the bottom quintile are primarily Hispanic and black men? So maybe in a construction type um, company or maybe manufacturing would fit that as well. Could that be discrimination? Well, even if it's not intentional discrimination, it could be disparate impact discrimination, which again occurs when people in a protected uh, class or category are adversely affected more than another group even though rules or policies are formally neutral so in this example hispanic and black men are compensated significantly less in their wage growth year to year when you look at that percentage of increase than the white men in the company so that could be seen as discrimination so what can you do well make sure your pay practices are fair And review your promotional and salary increase practices and the data that goes with it. You actually have to do some data analysis here. Why are the top levels seeing more of a percentage increase than the bottom levels of paid employees? If there's a business case to justify that, then that's fine, but oftentimes um, there isn't one. So what are you going to do to help all of your employees develop and grow so that they can have some of those opportunities to be promoted and um, get to those levels at more of an equitable pace? So that's something that definitely you need to look at at a regular basis. And then the last thing I want to mention related to compliance is just to be mindful of some of the key legislation that has been passed, introduced, or is pending adoption related to workplace civility and hiring. Many states and even local jurisdictions are considering legislation related to both of these topics. Some of the workplace civility legislation has come about because of the hashtag MeToo movement. So be mindful of your policies and practices related to harassment and discrimination and make sure you're doing regular training on these topics. One and done training isn't enough and computer-based training isn't enough. The EEOC recommends live interactive training so that employees can ask questions and experience real dialogue on this topic. And then regarding hiring legislation, this includes things like ban the box, so asking applicants whether they have a criminal background on the application, or asking applicants about their current or previous pay. So the legislation is designed to make it easier for people with criminal records to re-enter the workforce. And in the legislation restricting pay questions, it's to ensure fair market practices and limit pay discrimination. We just talked about this on the last slide. So if women are already paid less and then you as an employer pay them based on previous salary, you're perpetuating that pay gap and may be inadvertently discriminating against some of those individuals. So you have to be mindful of those things. All right. Went through A, B, and C. So let's jump to the end of the alphabet. And I don't have to tell any of you that finding and keeping good people is the most challenging aspect in your organizations today. And for many of my clients, it's really the limiting factor to growing their business. So let's talk about just a few trends that may impact your ability to uh, attract and retain good talent. So in 2010, we were doing some with flexible working arrangements and it's become much more prevalent in our workplaces today and will continue to be in the future. This can be a real benefit to employees and help you recruit and retain talent. With millennials, we saw more work-life integration, so working flexibly or having mobility to work in different places was essential. Flexible working arrangements could be as simple as working through lunch to have time off to go to your kid's soccer game, or maybe fully working remotely and not even having a physical work presence outside of your home. The key to having successful working arrangements for people is knowing that it doesn't work for every position or for every person, so it has to be tailored to some degree. Clear expectations and accountability to work outcomes is critical. You also need to consider data security with laptops or mobile devices and access to networks and information that your employees need when they're working remotely or working flexibly. So you have to work really closely with your IT department to set clear policies and procedures. And the other aspect of flexible work that sometimes gets overlooked is how team members that work remotely stay connected to the group it's essential to still have face-to-face time with these individuals to manage the relationship. And the frequency is going to vary based on the position and the individual in the role. Whatever you do in this area, I'd recommend you have a policy addressing some of the criteria, the data security considerations, monitoring, and that the work arrangements may be revoked at any time for any reason, including reasons beyond non-performance. So, for example, if your business changed, then you may need to shift how your employees work. And if an employee is able to um, or if the employee is able or willing to come back into the office full time, great. But if they're not, you may have to let them go and you would want a policy to back you up on this. So another thing we wanna think about is how we train our employees. How do we get them the right skills? Our talent shortage isn't just in technical skills. Many people in or entering the workforce lack some basic communication skills and aspects of emotional intelligence. So it'll be essential to evaluate and upgrade your learning and development programs. When you invest in, in your employees, you increase loyalty and retention. And we tend to focus on technical skill proficiency, but don't overlook the basics, how to communicate with different personality styles, how to work with conflict, how to have challenging or difficult conversations, how to provide performance feedback, how to present ideas and appropriately influence or lead others. And those aren't just management skills. Some of those are just basic skills we all need to have. Many organizations are creating their own programs to get their applicants and employees to the needed skill level because they understand the skills gap means they can't find employees. So they're training them when they come on board instead of expecting them to have those skills. Consider what your orientation and onboarding programs look like for those new employees to gain full proficiency in their roles, and what can you do to support that? When proficient, consider how to continuously upgrade an employee's current skill set. Technology will continue to change the way we work, so hiring employees with a growth mindset and having the programs to grow their skills will be critical for success of your employees and your businesses. And leadership development programs are also critical. How do you ensure your current employees have the necessary leadership skills and competencies to grow to the next level? Many employers are creating their own leadership development programs to address this gap. Consider hiring employees with the right attitude who fit your culture and then getting them the skills they need to be successful in the job. People can learn skills as long as you are willing to invest in them. And I've seen more and more employers um, willing to hire someone because they know they'll be a great team player, but um, they may be lacking some skills that they can certainly move. So, another thing I mentioned before, and we are seeing, is a trend moving away from getting feedback on just the annual performance review to continuous performance management. Regularly providing feedback to employees on what they're doing well, what they need to improve, and progress toward their goals is what we're looking at here. When you get into that regular rhythm, it helps managers to manage better. They're solving issues before they became major problems. And technology can help you in this area, so HRI, HRIS systems or software applications can help prompt and document feedback sessions. I know some managers set a weekly calendar appointment to give feedback to their employees. Others have a smartphone app that prompts them and helps them manage this. Employees want their manager's attention. So they want to know that someone notices what they're doing and their contributions. So if we're doing this on a regular basis and HR can help managers with the tools for this, it just impacts your organization. There may still be a need for quarterly and annual reviews, but in a continuous performance management program, those become less burdensome because your focus is more on what are the major accomplishments. What are the goals in development? And you've been providing feedback all quarter or all year long. So the employee um, is aware of all of those things they've been working on. There is, um, excuse me, this. so this is just another retention strategy. Employees who receive regular feedback and recognition for good work are more engaged in the work they're doing and they're more committed to you as a company. They know where they stand and know what they need to be working on. The other piece of talent recruitment and retention I wanna touch on is um, employee benefits. So it's important for you to constantly be looking at your benefits and determining what's valuable for your employees. And it really can be uh, different for individuals based on where they are in life and what they value. So as we look ahead in the 20s, we're going to have the basics. So health insurance, paid time off, retirement benefits, and it's essential for you to remain competitive in those areas. Um, So continue to look at what you offer and how you can be creative to stand out amongst your competitors. With younger generations waiting longer to have children, we've seen expanded fertility benefits becoming more common on health care plans. So you might consider where you are on that. And various forms of leave are becoming more prevalent. So parental leave and caregiver leave are um, becoming more important as options. And the trend is to give both parents paid time off for parental leave. Caregiver leave is to help with aging parents. So, again, we've seen more people um, having some flexibility in those leave management policies. It's not just about time off for the employee's illness, but it may be to care for others or care for aging parents as well. And we already talked about workplace flexibility or telecommuting as a form of benefits. So, use that where you can as well. In addition to some of the physical and mental health wellness programs we've seen, financial wellness programs will continue to increase in prevalence. So helping employees set and manage budgets, for instance, or save not just for retirement, but major purchases in their lives, like a car or a house, paying for their wedding, other critical life events, that will become more common in the 20s. The key here is making sure you understand and can communicate your total value proposition, what you as an employer can give in exchange for what you get from the employee. And the last thing we're gonna talk about in the A to Z category is Generation Z. So let me give you a few tips about them that we're starting to see. So like I said before, they're born um, in 1995 back to 2012. So they're about 18 to 25 years old right now. Um, They uh, are pragmatic. So some of the characteristics about them, pragmatic, savvy, optimistic, but they also have their parents' skepticism. So many of them were born to Gen X parents who are a little more critical and skeptical. skeptic, skeptic, excuse me. Um, So they pick that up a little bit. So they're not quite as optimistic as millennials. They tend to be pretty entrepreneurial as well. In the job hunt, they want money. So 61% think earning a high salary defines success when compared to some of those other benefits you might offer. And I've definitely seen this with some of my clients. And I, I don't really think it's different. It's more that when you're young and starting out, They think about money hitting their bank accounts and not the retirement benefit they'll see in 50 years because, well, frankly, 50 years is a long time. So, think about how you structure your offers and how you might structure pay and benefits differently for people that value pay differently. So, salary, work hours, and opportunity for personal happiness are the top three priorities when considering a job. This is pre hire. And then when they're in a job, work safety is really important to them. So think about um, them coming of age with mass shootings in schools and in workplaces. So safety is really important. Their lowest priority in the workplace is diversity. And I think this has a lot to do with them being the most diverse generation. So they may just see that as a given. It's not something they have to seek out because they're just used to it. They desire work-life balance, so they really think they don't need to work a ton of hours to get ahead, and they would freelance if they could make the same amount of money just because of the flexibility it offers. They think that um, happiness from a good work-life balance trumps a high salary. So it sounded a little paradoxical based on what I said before where they prioritize money, but they really are trying to get a balance in between the two. So what do they want in a manager? How about respect for their work hours? Remember, they don't think they need to work a ton of hours. And in communication, they actually prefer face-to-face over connecting by phone, text, or social media. They have really grown up with all of those things, but in work, they want to talk to you face-to-face. They prefer to work independently um, more so than millennials. They were very collaborative, so um, Gen Z will pull back a little bit on that and prefer more independent work. They want a voice, so ask them for their opinions or how they would do something. They may have very good ideas to share with you, and it'll make them feel more involved. And they embrace social change and change within workplaces, and they're going to push for it. So think about some of the things we've seen in the media with uh, younger groups organizing on public policy or politics. And then their biggest measure of success at work is being happy and good life or work-life balance. So they want to feel like they're getting something out of work that really contributes to their personal satisfaction in life. So those are some trends for you on Gen Z coming into the workforce, and hopefully those will be um, beneficial for you. Before we move on, we'll do one more poll question before we finish our last topic. So we'll go ahead and load that. Out of those areas we just reviewed, which do you think will most challenge you in the next decade? A, analytics, knowing the business, compliance, talent, or adapting to Gen Z? We'll give you just a few more seconds to get your votes in here. Looks like there's a clear front runner. We'll go ahead and close that poll and share the responses. Talent, so no surprise here. Um, You all think that talent attracting and retaining employees is going to be your biggest concern going forward. And then analytics is next. So how can we use data analytics to really drive some of our business uh, decisions and the solutions that uh, we can provide? All right, so we'll go ahead and move on just to the last topic here really quickly. We are going to talk about the competencies that are needed in the workplace and what you'll need to be successful in the next decade managing all of these trends. So the first one is continuous learning. So, our workplaces will continue to evolve, and one key to success is always learning. This includes learning about HR best practices, trends, employment law, in addition to learning about your business and industry. So, connecting with others is one good way to facilitate that learning. Another competency is adaptability. Because our workplaces evolve, we have to be adaptable. People who can readily adapt to changing situations will be better equipped to assist employees and management through transitions. And related to this is managing diversity. Understanding different perspectives is key to adapting in the situation. Being innovative is another area um, that will be needed for success. So related to the first two competencies, learning and adapting, help you to be innovative in your processes and practices. Are you open to change and doing things differently? People um, People that are open to change and doing things differently will be viewed more favorably because they're always looking for ways to make themselves and the workplaces better. Technology-oriented, kind of a no-brainer here. So, technology will continue to move us forward faster, and we have to be comfortable using various forms of technology and learning through the updates and changes, including data analysis and how we can use technology to serve us. And then finally, being a communicator is critical. So we have more and more technology to use, but the people that are most successful are those that are good communicators. And that doesn't mean that they're eloquent speakers, rather that they can clearly present an idea or information and get people on board with that idea. They're able to have difficult or challenging conversations, even if that conversation makes them uncomfortable. And while we do more and more online and through social media, having excellent communication skills is even more critical. So our last poll question we'll get through real quickly is just, uh, which competency are you most concerned about mastering? Continuous learning, adaptability, innovative, technology-oriented, or communicator? We'll hold that open for just a quick few seconds so that we can close out before we get to the top of the hour. Looks like continuous learning and being innovative and technology orientation are all um, aspects that you guys are most concerned about. So um, you're taking the right steps here, being on the webinar, learning more, but always looking for ways to do things better and to be um, using technology in an effective way will be things that uh, challenge all of us, I think, in the coming years. Well, I appreciate you joining us today. I hope you took took away at least one nugget or action item you can take away from this one. I'm going to turn it back over to Taylor to close out the webinar. But again, I thank you for joining us. And please let me know if there are any questions you have or follow up that I can help you with.